Hello, this is the Everyday Injustice podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the last 10 years as Vanguard Court Watch, we have operated court watches in California, San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? To shine light on everyday injustice in the court system, and now more broadly through the criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast is hoping to go a step further and shine a spotlight on criminal justice reforms on a national level. This past weekend, we hosted our ninth annual fundraiser, Reforming the Prosecution System. Not only did we have over 200 paid attendees at the event, we featured progressive prosecutors from across the country talking about the problems in the system and reform. The best part, though, was five exonerees were in attendance and four sets of parents of those currently wrongly imprisoned. I got a chance to meet Tio Sesams at this event, and we have him on our show today. Tio was 19 years old when two Sacramento homicide detectives interrogated him about a deadly home invasion he says he didn't participate in. That was in November 1999. 20 years later, he is still fighting to clear his name. Welcome to the show, Tio. Hey, I appreciate you having me, David. Thank you. So kind of walk us through maybe briefly, and then I can ask more questions about what happened 20 years ago. Uh, Okay, so 20 years ago, um, I actually was uh, what a couple of friends of mine called my rock tour. I was all over the United States, uh, from Seattle to New York to, to my home state, North Carolina, and playing tons of basketball. Um, I was very briefly in Sacramento um, for a few tournaments in Southern California. Uh, By the time I had moved to Oklahoma, I received a phone call from a a dear friend of mine from junior high stating that uh, a situation had taken place and uh, he's not sure how to handle it. Uh, Once he described what it was that that had taken place, the home invasion, I'm being a friend, a very dear friend, I'm the type of person that uh, I told him that I would hide him, uh, that he could come to Oklahoma and just let everything die down, so that he could see, uh, so that he could see what actually took place and what's going on. Oh, everybody, that's that's my son. Excuse me. But um, for the most part, I told him that I would hide him. Um, he said he didn't want to hide, and then about ten days later, I get a phone call from. My, my parents that lived in Atlanta, Georgia, telling me I was wanted in Sacramento for murder. Wow. Um, yeah, I know. That was November 13th, the Saturday night. Uh, me and the young lady that I was with, we were uh, closing our night out. It was probably about 11, 11 o'clock. And that ruined the rest of my weekend because then it was the question of my dad said, what are you going to do? And my first impression wasn't to turn myself in, but after a full 24 hours of of talking to my family, 
and the importance of just the fact you were in Oklahoma and, it, and you weren't even in the state of California when it took place, uh, you should turn yourself in, clear your name, and then you can get right back to Oklahoma. Uh, I turned myself in November 15th of 1999, and um, it was crazy because uh, the officers that I had turned myself into, uh, he was, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, he was a retired military, but he was a volunteer police officer for the university uh, police. And and he was slash tasker as well. So I turned myself into him, told him I wouldn't speak without an attorney being present. Um, he turned, he introduced me to the chief of Langston University's police department. Um, and I got booked in and during the process of the booking in, um, there was an officer in uh, Guthrie County that wanted to like force a statement out of me. And, uh, the two officers that I were with, uh, chief Buffert and, uh, the, um, and Mr. Uh, David Hines, they stated that he already invoked his right. He's not speaking. We're going straight to jail. So you can sit down and just type out the paperwork, take his picture, and we're leaving. I was booked into the Oklahoma City Jail, and five days later, here comes Sacramento Police Department. Um, and from there, as soon as they came in, I think one of the one of the ninth circuit one of the ninth circuit justices had counted how many seconds it was before I actually requested an attorney to be present during the interrogation. And it kind of went in the toilet after that. So what happens? Um, they Obviously, they illegally um, uh, continued to question you without an attorney. Um, how long does this go on? Uh, we sat in that room for maybe two hours or so. But I requested an attorney within 40 seconds of them entering the room after they introduced themselves, their names, what department they were with, and I introduced myself. Uh, they, I immediately asked for an attorney three, three different times, three different ways, and uh, it was, well, I'm going to be straight with you, and the philosophy that I have is this, and your co-defendants had already stated this and that, so we know you're, you're not a part of this. And, uh, man, it was just, uh, you know, I, it was a lot for a 19-year-old to be actually going through. And um, when I had asked, since they wouldn't allow me uh, to have an attorney present, I had asked to use the, the phone so that I could call my dad and speak with him. And they were like, no, everything was everything I asked for was a no. And these were old school police officers. I'm in a I'm in a state I know absolutely nothing about. Sitting in a jail, uh, cornered in a in a small room, and um, the initial statement that I had given, they didn't like because they knew nothing matched up. And then they started telling me information about the case. Well, this happened. What about this? And uh, when when this took place, these things were about. And you know they and then they wrote the report as if I had told them a story when that was nowhere near the case. It was a Q&A. They'd ask the questions. I'd say yes or no. Now, it sounds like this was actually recorded, right? Yes, it was. So you have evidence that they're actually, first of all, ignoring 
your request for counsel and second of all, feeding you information, but this didn't seem to matter to the courts. <laughs> no, um, it did not. Uh, I couldn't afford an $80,000 attorney. So the state appointed me an attorney, a uh, very incompetent attorney. I had ended up having two of those, uh, given by uh, the city of Sacramento and, uh, everything that I had told my, my trial attorney at this, at this point, he would, um, just basically nudge off. It was, he showed absolutely no care. Um, I had a private investigator whom she actually signed an affidavit years later, which is, uh, in the Eastern district court. Um, she stated, I told her about Oklahoma alibi witnesses and to speak with the uh, arresting officers in Oklahoma at least four times. And when she told the attorney, the attorney said, don't worry about it. Now, do you end up going to trial? I do. And, and what happens? Uh, my trial was, my trial opening argument started maybe Tuesday afternoon. And the guilty verdict came back that Friday. So I had a felony murder trial that lasted about three days. The transcript is no more than 500 pages of that trial. So you have a murder trial and it only goes for three days? Yes, it does. The attorney that I had did absolutely no investigating, um, no investigating whatsoever. So we didn't put a defense up. When it came our turn to speak, he said, uh, your honor, we rely on the state's evidence. And there was, yeah. Uh, what is the sentence? Uh, my sentence was life without parole plus 15 years. So you got life without parole plus 15 years because you're going to live 15 years past that. Um, interesting. (laughs) I know. Right. But actually you do the 15 years first and then the life without part. Understood. (laughs) So what do they say that you said to the police in terms of your confession? What do you mean by that? Uh, In other words, they claim that you confessed to the crime, correct? Yes. The the confession that that they um, told the jury was that I was... I stated I was present, that I went to go commit um, a burglary, and then the murder took place. And did you sign the confession? No, sir. Okay. And did any of the audio recordings show you saying that you had confessed to this? Uh, Yes. Yes, like I said, as they... The, the interrogation was a, was a, a Q and a, they would ask me questions and I would say, yes or no, this took place. When I initially told them that I wasn't present and that I had nothing to do with it. They weren't hearing that at all. They had only came for one thing and one thing only. So eventually you actually did confess to committing a crime that you didn't. Yes. Okay. Um, so tell me about life in prison. Uh, life in prison is very interesting. Um, you, it's, it's not what people believe it is, what you see on television or in movies, 
but it's still it's more of a, a psychological warfare uh, within yourself. Actually, um, when I got there, I had made a commitment to myself that I was going to get out of prison effective uh, immediately as fast as possible by staying the course, hitting the law library, hitting the law library, and filing as many habeas petitions as possible to assist the court with seeing how wrong I was. And in terms of education, were you able to get education while you were in prison? Uh, no. Um, I got my GED maybe four years into being on um, uh, level four on a maximum security yards, uh, and that was due to lockdowns. Uh, it was lockdowns. Some of them lasted two years. You know, just being in a cell 24 hours a day. Uh, I initially, uh, eventually, I was sent to an additional yard uh, where there was program, but I didn't stay on that yard long. I ended up going back to a maximum security yard, um, and that was about my fourth year where we were up long enough, and everybody kind of did home uh, in-cell studies on their GED, and then we immediately took the test. And it was like right after we took the test, a lockdown took place for like four months. Wow. Yeah, it's, it was, I was, my, my first prison was High Desert State Prison. It's up there in Susanville. Um, had a very disgusting reputation of being uh, racist. Uh, you know, uh, they were even, from the stories that I heard, the racism was so strong there, they even burned crosses on the black uh, guards that lived up there that worked in the prison. Wow. It definitely has an interesting reputation. How long were oh, you yes, at yes. High Desert? Uh, I was at High Desert for five years from 2002 to 2007. And, and then where'd you go after that? I went to uh, Kern Valley State Prison. Uh, better known as New Delano. I was only there for about four months before I went to another prison, which was uh, Centinella, about eight miles from Mexico. Now, what are you thinking during this time? Are you thinking, man, they've made a mistake, I'm going to get out of here, or are you thinking, man, I'm stuck here? Uh, depending on the day. It was, <laughs> it was a mixture of both. Uh, especially, especially my first two years when um, the the state uh, appellate attorney I was given had uh, finally uh, exhausted the state remedies, and he kind of like just dumped my case on me, sent me all the transcripts, everything, and stated, you know, this is where you know the road ends for me. Good luck, and I had to start writing my own habeas petition and the denial started even more and um, there was a case law called Missouri versus Siebert and in Missouri versus Siebert uh, it was a lady that had that had a, a confession to a crime that she didn't commit and the way the officers interrogated her as well uh, was uh, found constitutionally uh, 
it violated her constitutional rights. And I had used that case in one of my habeas petitions to uh, my trial court. And my trial judge has stated that uh, the Missouri versus Seabird case had absolutely nothing to do with my case. There's no comparison and denied it on that motion on, on that alone. And then when I do get to the Ninth Circuit, guess what the case law is that the Ninth Circuit judges use? That Missouri versus Seabird. <laughs> so, you know, it was uh, those first few denials really, really broke me down in the sense of either I'm going to continue or I'm going to quit. And the second denial I, I had received from the trial court, I did quit, actually. It wasn't long. It was a few hours. Uh, a celly that I had at the time by the name of Dave Fulbright, he told me, just he was like, just get some sleep on me. Everything will be all right in the morning. And I remember laying down. I've never felt so heavy in my life. But I woke up at 4 a.m. and it got right back to writing habeas, my, my next stage habeas corpus because I just couldn't see myself sitting in there until it was over. How do you keep going through all this? I mean, did you have a regimen that that you tried to do every day or are you just kind of flying blind all the time? Um, well, I, I had a regimen initially and then it felt like I was a robot. So most people get up. I've never drank coffee a day in my life. I've never done drugs. I've never smoked weed. I don't smoke cigarettes. So I don't have those, those, uh, vices. So in the morning I get up, there's no coffee. I brush my teeth, wash my face. Uh, I don't watch TV like that. So it was read, read, read case laws. Um, I've always been, you know, mediocre at writing. So I just had to make my argument more convincing. So and <laughs> the workout, I've worked out from as early as 3 a.m. to 9 at night. As just I tried to break any type of routine to where it felt like I was incarcerated. So I got to ask this. Um, you know, you're a pretty big guy. Um, did you have problems with other inmates or did they largely just leave you alone? Uh, no, nah, you know, problems, problems are always going to be there. It's just like out here, uh, based on my size, you know, the funniest part is there's a lot of big guys in prison and a lot of them can't fight. So a lot of people would tend to pick on big guys. <laughs> uh, I had, uh, I had an altercation or two. You know, it didn't end well for the for the opposition, but you know, once people see that that on top of I consistently mind my own business and I'm going to the law library or I'm on the basketball court or if you don't find me in those two places I'm in the cell. So you know, it's it, it boils down to um people minding their own business. You stay on your own track, I'll stay on mine. Our paths will never cross, you know? Yeah. All right, so tell us the story of how you end up getting out. Uh, okay, so 2005, I was given uh, this attorney, uh, appellate attorney out of um, Albany, California, by the name of Eric Weaver. 
when I filed my federal habeas corpus to the Eastern District here in Sacramento, the court said that um, my issues were complex. And based under this uh, case law, I think it was Look versus Way Gang or Way Gang versus Look, they had given me uh, counsel to represent me. Um, I was given Eric Weaver, and we butted heads initially because I'm. We talked over the phone. This is before he even got the uh, before he even got the transcripts. So I'm telling him about my case, and I know he's over the phone. Like there's no possible way they made this many mistakes in a in a in a case. But he was like, just let me get the paperwork. I'll look it over and I'll tell you which direction we're going to go. And you know it. it I've had bad attorneys all the way up to this point, you know? So I was like, if you don't even want to be on the case, just let me know. And, you know, they'll give me somebody else or I'll just go through it with myself on my own. But uh, by the time he received the, the, the transcripts and looked over the case, he okay. said there's an inflammatory, uh, uh, a number of inflammatory <laughs> violations in your case. And I'm going to do my absolute best to get you out. So fast forwarding, so seven years, by 2012, uh, I had my first uh, reversal in the Ninth Circuit. Um, one of the judges was, uh, uh, goodness, I can't remember her name, sweet woman. Her, her first name was Betty. She, uh, My aunt's name is Betty as well, the one that stuck with me for all those years. But this judge, Betty Fletcher, as a matter of fact, uh, she passed away right after that opinion. And I went to the nine, I went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they sent the case back, citing Salinas versus Texas, saying, telling the court, this is the case that will help you guys make a better decision or a stronger decision or whatever. And so now the issue in the Ninth Circuit was who is going to be the judge that replaced uh, uh, the Honorable Betty Fletcher? And my, me and my attorney was like, man, it can be. He said, if, they, if you get a conservative, this can go bad. I was like, yeah. But, you know, I said, the one thing, though, is we've been through all these no's. All these judges been telling us no. And we got that one judge that said, this is wrong. He should be back. The court did this. The, the detectives were slimy. I mean, she used so many names for the way the attorney, I mean, the, the detectives handled me in that interrogation room. And uh, I just stay positive, you know. Yeah. So what? Uh, so what ends up happening? Uh, what ends up happening then is I get um I get an additional judge to replace Miss Miss uh, Betty Fletcher, and uh, they came back with the exact same opinion, uh, the exact same decision, but the opinion was written better. It was uh, the opinion that. Um, the opinion that the majority had given was more thorough than before. Of course, it was still 5-4. There were still four, and the Chief Justice was one of the four, but he had written an opinion stating um, how he felt about the case and the way the detectives handled handled me was absolutely wrong. But there's this thing that they got uh, in the federal system called uh, Anti-Terrorism Death Penalty Act. It's AEDPA. Those are the initials they use for it. And it states that it prohibits a federal court from basically getting involved in a state case. 
saying that they're supposed to give them uh, they're supposed to give them respect, basically, in regards to the state making a decision and feds not putting their their nose in it, allowing the state to do to take care of their own. And uh, it went back to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, <laughs> wow. The the cert motion, yeah, I know the cert motion was was filed. The attorney general was so slippery. He filed um, he filed a motion. Um, right before the U.S. Supreme Court goes on their vacation, their summer vacation, which runs from July 1st all the way until October 1st. So I was like, the way the, the opinion was written, I was like, I'm going to win. But then he did that, and, I, you know, I got to sit in prison for a whole summer of 2015 and just basically wonder. And then... um I remember uh, one of the news stations here in Sacramento has stated what was going to be on the calendar for uh, the U.S. Supreme Court and all the cases that they were talking about. And me and my boy, Drew, was walking to Chow at dinner and was like, he did. He said, I didn't see your case on there. I was like, I know. I said, I think that cements it. I think they denied the cert motion. And uh, Eric had told me, don't call until like the Tuesday, the following day after they come back. And when I did call Eric that Tuesday, um, <laughs> Eric said, man, I got a call from a buddy of mine on the East Coast saying your guy won. And, David, I was so ecstatic. Um, I think I ran laps in the building <laughs> when, when, when Eric was still on the phone. I put the phone down, and I was extremely excited about the fact that I was going to have this opportunity to come back. So then it comes back and what happens? <laughs> okay. So I come back December 8th of 2015. Um, they had until January 3rd to uh, retry me or immediately release me. I walk into the court with no representation, very respectful to the judge, uh, told him that, um, I wanted uh, a prior attorney that I that I had when I had filed an, an ineffective assistance counsel new trial motion based on my trial attorney, and he told me, uh, you know, there was no way they could give me that attorney. You allow the conflict criminal defender's office to to do their job, and they'll pick an attorney, somebody to come see me. You know, that the whole little format. But um, a few days later, I end up getting this attorney. And, you know, he dressed well, you know, had his hair combed over and he, he had this stance and, you know, he was very confident in himself and he was like, what they did was wrong. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But I need you to waive your January 3rd date. I'm like, why would I waive that date when uh, the, the, the feds said this? He said, well, I know, but there's no way I can look over a competent attorney can look over a case within two weeks and be ready to go to trial. So uh, I had a lot of thinking to do until the next day for court. And, you know, I, I saw Eric again because he came and gave uh, the, the attorney um, all the information that he had, all the paperwork he had. And I ended up waiving that date. And again, I've never felt 
there's two times in my entire life, well, three, when I felt very heavy. My soul felt extremely heavy about making a decision. And one was November 15th in Oklahoma with SAC, with SAC detectives. Two was that time I felt I was going to quit. And then this time, when I, when I waived my January 3rd, 2016 retrial release date. And I waived it. An attorney set the court date for February 18th. He was going to file a demur motion. Um, I'd be out, this and that and the other. And David, that time, came and went. I ended up sitting in the Sacramento County Jail for two years. And nothing had been done. Unbelievable. And within those two years, I represented myself for a hundred plus days and I'm sending my private investigator out and uh, I'm finding out there is no witnesses have been spoken to about my case as in at all. So again, I had another incompetent attorney that didn't fight the case. Wow. So let's kind of flash forward here. Ultimately, the DA's office offers you an offer. Uh, Plead no contest uh, to manslaughter and burglary, and then you'd be out because it'd be time served. Yes. Why did they offer that? Um, To be honest, I have no idea. Interesting. It was... uh... Like I said, it was a trial date had been set for October of 2017. I was ready. I did all the investigation work. I had set all the pieces up. All the attorney had to do was come in and speak. Um, but he had told me that uh, he wouldn't be ready to go to trial that October and that I had to wait an additional six to eight months, which would run me about June 2018. And um, there was no way in hell I could sit another six to eight months on top of the two years I had already been there. My soul was was so heavy. I was ready to get out of jail, man. And so that's why you you accepted the offer? Yes, it is. That's the only reason why I accepted. And the attorney had stated the no contest, the no contest uh, um, entry was – I could still file my civil suit against SAC PD um, for the intentional uh, Miranda violation, knowing that I asked for an attorney three times and they ignored it. And also uh, it took me 16 years to even see my arrest warrant. And when I did, I, I noticed, found out that my arrest warrant wasn't even signed and that there was false information within the arrest warrant. So, you end up taking the deal, and what was it like when you walked out? Uh, walking out of prison, walking out of that jail was, uh, it was like, uh, man, it's a harder description. It was, you know, I was ready, you know, and I, I walked out, and I remember opening that, I had the door open for me because I had my stuff with me. And when I took that first step out, you know, it seemed like the sun was a whole lot brighter than what it was when I was on the yard. 
That makes sense. Yes, it does. <laughs> so what are you doing now in terms of trying to exonerate yourself? I assume you have recourse now under the new state law 1437 because you were convicted under felony murder. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it is. I'm actually uh, working on uh, filing that paperwork as we speak. Uh, but what I have uh, also going for myself is uh, a business that I turned around and started uh, with my wife's assistance um, called uh, Trend Consulting LLC. And what it is we do is uh, <laughs> research for those that are incarcerated. I'm here to assist with um, doing research for new laws that are being passed, helping people look over their cases, um, a mentorship. I mean, there, there's a, a number of things that, that are taking place within the, within the, the organization. So I want to, my main goal is to make someone's time as easy as possible. Mine was nowhere near that. I had so many issues. There were laws that were being dropped to where if I knew about them, it would assist me and made me better with writing my, my habeas corpus. But I didn't know anything about them. You know, and uh, the only family that I had that stayed from start to finish was my mother and my aunt, you know, my golden girls. You know, these ladies were, are are cut from from iron, you know, so they stayed the course with me from when I first got incarcerated all the way until I was released. And they live on the East Coast. They live in North Carolina. And tell us about your wife. How did you meet her and when did you get married? Uh, okay. So, uh, my wife, I've known my wife since we were 10 years old. We lived uh, across the street from one another. I used to, uh, early in the morning when I walked to school, run over, give her a hug and a kiss, and I'd be on my way to catch the bus. Uh, me and my wife, we got married, um, October 5th of last year, uh, so I got out October 5th of 2017, October 5th, 2018, we got married. And within that time period, we've had our son. And, um, you know, it's, it's the adjustment of being, uh, you know, in my marriage with my wife, everything seems just like how it did when we were babies. And life is a whole lot calmer now. Wow. So October 5th is kind of an important date for you. Yes, it is. It was the day I was released from hell. And uh, the year later, I walked right into my marriage. And have things gone smoothly on the outside since you've been out, or was it a hard adjustment for you? Uh, David, with, uh, to be very honest, my adjustment was smooth for, for the simple fact that the commitment that I made to myself about being incarcerated and seeing to it that I got back. I had absolutely no intention on being incarcerated, coming home, looking like I was incarcerated and or getting out. And then now I'm going to flip the script and act like I want everyone to know. There's a lot of people that meet me and they're like, you were locked up all that time. I'm like, absolutely. 
but you couldn't tell because of the way that I handled my business when I was in, when I was behind bars. And what's your goal in your future? What, what are you looking to do now? Um, I am in school right now, um, angling to get my, uh, my degree in administrative justice, uh, criminal justice. And then I'm going to law school right after that. And God willing, I passed the bar. They better watch out for me in the state of California because I'm, I'm coming to defend all of my people, man, all the people that couldn't afford the $80,000 attorney. I'm here to, to, to be their representation to see to it that their constitutional rights are upheld and uh, they have a fair trial. Wow, what a story. Thanks for being on. I sincerely appreciate the invite, David. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks. That is T.O. Sessoms. What a story. Goes from wrongly convicted, gets out. Now he's trying to go to law school and help others avoid the same fate that he had. This has been David Greenwald on the Everyday Injustice podcast. Join us again next time for more tales from the criminal justice system.